Hi everyone and welcome to another episode of the Motherkind podcast with me your host Zoe Blasky where each week I chat about all things motherhood and well-being. My mission with this podcast is to help you reconnect to you, to feel happier, more joyful, calmer and that little bit kinder to yourself because I think life as a mum in this hectic modern world is hard enough as it is. I believe becoming the happiest, most alive version of ourselves is the most important and inspiring thing we can do for our children. As you may have seen on Instagram or heard on the podcast last week, I am so excited to be partnering with two on the Parenting in a Pandemic workshop series. Two recently completed a survey and found that 96% of new and expectant parents felt they had missed out as a result of the pandemic. So the free Parenting in a Pandemic workshops will cover what we know are the challenges right now for new parents, relationships, self-care, how to process becoming a parent in a pandemic, and what your baby needs most at this time. The workshops were filled in just a few hours, but don't worry if you missed out on a place as key highlights will be available following each session on Two's Instagram. You can follow them at Two Clothing. I am so excited to be partnering with Two on these workshops. I love their baby and children's clothes for the girls. In fact, one of my favourite ever dresses of Jessie's is from two and she's worn it so much and I'm really impressed with the quality. The spring collection is amazing. There's a pair of floral dungarees and the most amazing yellow raincoat that I'm going to get for Rose. Check it out at two.co.uk. On to this week's episode. My guest this week says that we are all born feeling enough with an innate sense of esteem and confidence and our job if we want to live a fulfilled life and who doesn't want that is to get back to that place starting to believe again that we are enough just as we are this week i'm talking about the power of the mind with marissa peer Marissa Peer is the UK's number one therapist, as voted by Tatler magazine. Over the past 25 years, she's coached an extensive client list of royalty, rock stars, Hollywood celebs, Olympic athletes, political leaders, and CEOs of multi-billion dollar companies. Marissa's approach is known as transformational hypnotherapy. It's a mind optimization science that completely transforms a person's way of thinking and therefore living, and often in just as little as one or two sessions. I've followed Marissa's work for years, so it was such a joy to finally be able to sit down and have a chat with her particularly at this time. And we talk about the pandemic, how to help yourself at this really, really, really challenging time, and also how to help our children. In fact, Marissa's developed a totally free meditation video for children called Magical Minds. It's absolutely fab. It helps children tap into their subconscious mind to find calm. So if your children are feeling anxious or uncertain right now, I'll pop the link in the show notes on my website. I absolutely loved this chat and I have a feeling, well, I hope all of you will too. Here it is. Marissa, welcome to the Motherkind podcast. I am so excited 
to be chatting with you. I've wanted to talk to you for a long time. So I'm really thrilled to be sat with you at this time as well. I think there's not a better time for my audience to hear your wisdom than now. Well, thank you. I'm thrilled to be here. And it's always an honor and indeed a pleasure to talk to people like you and your great audience. Oh, thank you. Well, you've been studying the human mind for 33 plus years. You are one of the greats. You know, you've been called Britain's best therapist amongst many other accolades. And I wanted to kick straight off by asking you about the current situation because we were briefly just chatting about it before we started recording. You know, particularly for parents, there's a lot of uncertainty. There's been that cumulative burnout, I think, going on now, given that we've been living this for nearly a year. There's lots of anxiety. And I know you have such simple yet really transformational and transformative ways that we can use our mind, the most powerful tool we've got, to change our experience. So can you talk to that first? If someone's really struggling right now with what's going on, how can they help themselves? I mean, you know, I can't pretend it's all lovely and wonderful being in the house for almost a year. We're all having our issues. And I do believe that children out of everybody are the ones who are missing out the very most because they're not going to school. They're not connecting. They're not, so they, you know, children are like little puppies. They need to be out running, jumping and playing and socializing. So it's awful if you're losing your business. But I really feel that the generation that are finding this, going to find this harder, although our children, they are very adaptable. So how do you deal with, with it? It's not easy, except you have to understand the way you feel about everything is down to only two things, the pictures you make in your head and the words you say to yourself, there really is nothing else. The pictures and words, that's how you feel. It's always saying, I'm in quarantine, I'm in lockdown, I'm trapped at home, I'm stuck at home, I'm locked in the house. These things are not strictly true because real quarantine means you're like in an isolation ward and you can't go anywhere. And we're not actually locked in. No one locks the door and takes away the keys. So it's much better to say, you know, I'm safe at home. I am safe at home. It's challenging. So when you use words like it's awful, it's terrible, I'm locked up, I'm in, people are I'm in prison, I feel like I might as well live in North Korea. If I wanted to be in prison, I'd go and live there. I'm trapped, I'm stuck. And I'm like, you know, none of that is actually really true. You are safe at home. You can open your door and walk out anytime you like. You can still go to some shops and pharmacies. And of course, it's not ideal, but Half the world again, well, I quite like this COVID. I mean, it's great. I'm working from home. There's no commute. I don't want it to end. The other half are going, it's just awful. I can't stand it. I can't bear another week of this. And so that in itself is interesting. Is some people like it and some people hate it, and it's the same situation. What that says is how you feel about it, because events do not affect you. But how you feel about the event will affect you. And, you know, human beings can cope with anything when it has an ending, even pain. I mean, you and I have given birth. I used hypnosis. And you can cope with that when you know this will end. In a few more hours, it'll be over. I've got a terrible stomachache, headache, chronic upset, something. But this is not going to last very long. It's when you can't see an ending that it hurts you. There's something to really get you. It has to be what I call PPP. It has to be permanent has to be your pervasive is going on all the time, even when you're sleeping, and it has to be personal. Well, this isn't permanent. You know, we're already beginning to see by the summer, by Easter, hopefully it will all be better. It's not personal. We're all in it together. 
And it doesn't go on every minute when you're sleeping, when you're having great sex, when you're eating a yummy dinner. It's actually not really going on then. So the only way you can deal with this is deal with how you feel about it. What does it mean? How can you make the best of it? You know, as a parent living in a high-rise apartment with three kids and no outside space must be the biggest challenge. Well, so if you have a garden, if you have outside space, keep thinking, wow, I'm so lucky. I've got it easier than other people. And the most interesting thing is we all say, if I had more time, if I had more time, I'd batch cook. My house would be amazing. I'd teach my kids Mandarin or I'd do yoga. Now suddenly we think, wow, I've got all this time and I'm lying on the sofa eating Pringles and not doing any of that. So we all go, if I only had more time. And, you know, one day you look back and think, wow. I had that time because you probably never get that time again. Once this is all over, you probably never again be at home with your children for months on end and they're going to grow up anyway. So the only thing you can do is make the most of it. Turn every cookery thing into a lesson. How much vitamin C is in a potato? The best is in the skin. How much does this weigh? You know, all your kids ever really want is to be present with them. So you can make as soon as you're looking at a spider's web, a biology lesson, you can make cooking a maths or a health lesson. You just have to do what you can, but also allow yourself to also lie on the sofa with a packet of Pringles at the end. I think, you know, I've earned this now. So you have to do both. You have to make the very best of it that you can while totally allowing yourself to lie in the bath or the bar of chocolate thinking, you know, if this makes me feel better, then I'm going to have that too. There's so much that you said that I want to pick up on. But the first thing is when you talked about certainty and I've heard you, you know, I've read all your books and I hear you talk about certainty a lot, that our minds need certainty. And I just want to underscore that point because at the moment there is a lot of uncertainty. How can we give ourselves certainty? You touched on it, but I think it might be worth expanding on that. Yeah, so certainty is a human need. We need to know all the time, am I okay? I mean, is my relationship, are my kids well? Am I healthy? Am I going to live a long life? Have I got enough money? Can I pay my bills? So certainty is a human need, being certain you're okay. It's why when you're dating someone who's married or on the other side of the world or your child suddenly gets sick or your job, it changes that you get this uncertainty But now we've got a kind of global uncertainty. But this is not new. This happened in 9-11. This happened when the AIDS epidemic. They said, oh, everyone we know, every 10th person to be dead, and no one's ever going to have sex like they had before. We saw it with SARS. It's not actually new. Periodically, something comes along and takes away our certainty. And we all think, oh, my God, am I ever going to get on a plane again? I don't want to live in a high-rise building. I'm scared now, even having sex with somebody. I'm scared of sharing a glass because of AIDS. And then gradually we realize, oh, after 9-11, life did go back to normal. I mean, it really did. People don't anymore feel so worried about AIDS because now people have had AIDS for 30 years and, and it's something that doesn't always have to kill you. You can live with it now. So in a world where your certainty is gone, it happened with Brexit. All the people who wanted to remain, that's gone You see it in America, the people who want Trump to stay and the ones who are desperate for him to leave. One half loses when the other half wins. So in a world where you don't have certainty, the only thing you can do is to give yourself certainty by saying, you know, I'm the same mum. I'm the same sister. 
I'm the same wife. I'm the same parent. I'm the same lover. My life is the same. I get up. I parent my children. I talk to my friends and I have a delicious cappuccino. The only certainty you can ever have is your own certainty because there's always going to be something that gets thrown in the mix. Suddenly you get a terrible illness. You get diagnosed with something and you have to decide it's a bit like, you know, when I was having my very longed for baby, I was told so many times this baby's not normal. You're never going to carry it to full term. I was told at least three times that I was losing her. And she was born perfectly. And I had to be the one that said, right, I'm just going to sit down and talk to my baby, go, you're great, you're fine, you're wanted, you stay. And with the best will in the world, most doctors are lovely people. Sometimes they terrify you with, oh, this baby is really underweight, they're not developing, something is wrong. All you can do when you hear that is go, I'm okay. You know, the most important words you'll ever hear in your whole life are the words you say to yourself. And so, you know, I've had some brushes with being diagnosed with horrible illnesses. And I always realized, you know, it's not down to you. It's down to me to decide I'm not going anywhere. I'm staying here no matter what. And when you can give yourself certainty Like say the person you want to spend your whole life with dumps you. Well, that's a terrible thing. Oh my God. I was just reading in the Daily Mail, actually, they reprinted Bridget Jones' diary. And when she was talking about being dumped, oh my God, I remember that feeling. You wake up and you go, oh, and your stomach is on the floor and you feel so rejected. And oh, why don't they love me? What's wrong with me? But then you have to give yourself certainty. Okay, this person was crazy. or They rang up just to hear my voice. They sent me all these messages. They told me I was the best thing they'd ever happened to them. And when they packed their bag and left, they didn't take that with them. Whatever they loved in me is still in me. And if they loved me like that once, then someone else will love me like that, but even more. And this is my starter relationship, like my starter home. And now I'm going to find a better one. I'm going to learn from that. So even when you're dumped, rejected, fired, you can still give yourself certainty because it's not what happens, it's how you feel about it. And the great news is that you get to choose how you feel about it and even better how you talk about it. You have so many powerful things that you teach, but really what I take from so much of your work is that our minds will do what we tell them to do. Yeah. So if there's a mum homeschooling at the moment and the narrative in her head is constantly, I'm so stressed, I can't do this. How could she use what you're talking about to create a different reality? Of course, it's very different teaching a four-year-old to read, teaching a 12-year-old chemistry, because I know when I was raised, I couldn't even understand my daughter's math. It's like, what? I don't even know what this is. I don't really get this at all. But nowadays, we're very lucky we can go on the computer and download a math lesson. We can, if we have the money, pay for an online tutor or maybe share that with other people. So for all its faults, the internet is amazing because whenever you think, I don't know the answers, well, I just Google it. I'll Google for my child. So you're homeschooling and that's not easy. But you have to remember a couple of things The school day includes a lot of recess, a lot of lunch, a lot of breaks. We only need to do three hours with your kids. And a lot of that can be done on the computer. I find children can learn so much from watching TED Talks, from watching documentaries. I loved horrible histories. And there's a great guy that does all these classical novels into gangster rap style. It's really good. So 
Of course, you have to be helping your kids and teaching your kids. But that's one of our great joys when we teach our kids to cook, teach our kids to plant seeds, teach our kids to go shopping and read the right labels, teach them to use the washing machine and the dishwasher. And so you have to kind of make regular everyday events something that you're teaching. And when you really can't teach it, because I couldn't teach advanced maths, I couldn't even teach IT skills. And you have to go, you know what, this is not my remit. You're supposed to be good at one thing. You're not supposed to be a jack of all trades and a master of none. And even in school, they have an English teacher, a chemistry teacher, a drama teacher, an art teacher. No one teacher says, I'll teach everything because I'm really good. So give yourself a break. Say, hey, this is not my skill set. I'm going to have to find out on the computer or get someone else, get an older teenager to come around and teach you this or go online. But don't give yourself the stress of saying, I've got to be a teacher. You know, teachers are amazing. My father was a teacher. But to teach, you have to love teaching and love children. In the same way to be a nurse, you have to love collecting urine samples and taking blood which and giving people a bed bath. Sometimes it's just not your thing. So don't blame yourself if you don't enjoy it and you find it super hard and just break it down into a chunk and then decide what is my reward for doing this? Because humans really cope well with the reward, delayed gratification. I'm going to do an hour of maths with my children then I'm going to lie in the bubble bath, download a blog and make myself a toasted cheese or do whatever I want. When you can reward yourself Say you wake up and you have a cappuccino and a bit of screen time. You think, right, I'm going to do the kids, get all set up. And then cappuccino and calling my friends is my reward. Because when you have a reward to move towards, you cope better. That's how we cope with childbirth. The reward is you get a beautiful baby at the end of it. Otherwise, none of us would do it. But human beings cope very well when they delay gratification and give themselves a reward. I mean, all parents know do your homework, then you can go out to play, eat your dinner, and then you can have some television, finish your main course, and then you can have a little dessert. So we naturally understand that humans do much better if they have a reward. And as parents, you've got to give yourself rewards. And it can be a simple thing, like I'm going to make a mochaccino, I'm going to go and look at some cat videos on Instagram, if that's your thing, I'm going to just watch a particular show I really want to watch on my own. It doesn't matter what it is. Maybe it's reading, but you have to reward yourself because when you get a reward, you're more likely to finish it. And also when you're doing this with your kids, the teaching, don't go, God, I'm so inept. I just can't just keep saying, I'm actually doing this really well. I'm coping well. I'm actually very good at this. I'm amazed that I've got the patience, the understanding, but hey, I'm doing a great job because parenting, you are doing a great job. Just the fact that you're trying is a great job and don't expect to be amazing. Just do your best and that will always be more than enough. I love how you talk about right at the end about being enough. Yeah. I see by working with, you know, thousands of mothers and parents at this point is that, so many parents feel like they're not enough as a parent and they're not enough in all areas of their life, actually. And I know this is so core to what you teach is this idea of I am enough. Can you explain how really believing that or even not believing it, but just telling ourselves a better lie, as you call it, 
can utterly change how we feel about ourselves in our life. You know, having been a therapist for such a long, long time, of course, my best teachers were my own patients who taught me very early on that the common denominator of all their issues is I'm not enough. So who will come in with alcoholism, kleptomania, hoarding, compulsive shopping, any addiction you could think of, whether it's food, drugs, drink, sex, shopping, shoplifting, hoarding stuff, is always down to the thing I'm not enough and therefore I need more. Maybe I need more praise, more love, more attention, more recognition. Maybe I just need more donuts. But... That was the symptom of a belief I'm not enough and therefore I need more. And so how do you cure that? Well, you can't cure not enoughness with more. Anyone knows you can give your kids more stuff and more stuff, but it's an emotional emptiness. And it's actually based on a lie. No baby's born going, don't look at me. I haven't got any hair. I've got milk spots. I've got triple knees. I mean, this washed out baby grow that my big brother and sister had before me, so I'm not enough. They have no idea. So the good place to start is that you were born knowing that you're enough. That's why if you shut your baby in a cupboard, he's going to cry for hours. Yeah, I have a friend called Sammy Shoebox, and he's called that because somebody put him as a newborn baby in a shoebox, and they put him on a tip in the Philippines And he must have cried without a break for three days because this person said, you know, I heard this wailing, thought it was a cat. And the next I heard it again, thought, what's that? But the third day, it's like, wow, what is that? And they found them. There was this little three-day-old baby whose name was sent to America, adopted, is now quite a famous DJ. But all of that stems from the fact that he was so convinced he was worth that attention that he cried in the same way a little kitten will come up or a puppy. They don't go, oh, you don't like me. They go, I need feeding. I need a hug. I need some attention. So I'm going to climb on you and wrap myself around your leg. So we are born with this innate feeling that says I'm worth it. I'm worth love. I'm worth attention and time and affection. And that's very good news because what that means is it's not that you never had it. You forgot you had it. And so when you start to go, I am enough, you are reactivating and regenerating what you were born with. I'm enough. And if only everyone could spend their days going, I'm enough. In fact, if every parent had their children in the morning say, okay, after breakfast, we do this as a family, whether you like it or not, we're going to go. I'm enough. I matter. I'm significant. And I am lovable. And when you make your children say it and state it and put it around the house, it really goes in in the same way that if you have dry skin and you put lotion on it, it nourishes dry skin Well, words will nourish you too. And one of my clients was saying, you know, her son was 14. He went, oh, my God, I'm not doing that. She said, no, you have to do it every day. If you want pocket money and privileges, you've got to do it. And he's like, anyway, he did it. And then one day he said, mum, you didn't ask us today. She went, oh, I'm sorry. Right. And she said, isn't that great that he suddenly, he asked me to remind him. And when I forget, he would do it because he said, I feel so much better. And then another of my clients who's American said, my son, he had to say every day, and I gave him a quarter. He said, I'm not doing that for a quarter. He said, no, no, we're going to do this. It's a little experiment. Every day you say, I'm enough, and I give you a quarter. And sometimes he would say, I'm not doing it. I refuse. One day he went, mum. She said, look how many quarters. He went, no, no, look how much time I've spent saying I'm enough. She said, do you want to spend the money? He's like, no, I don't want to spend it. I want to leave it there and add to it because it makes me feel good about myself. So it's never too late because it's like a loop. You have a thought. The thought is I'm not enough. That's a thought. But that thought 
affects your feelings. Now you feel not enough to take action, to take risks, to ask people to hang out with you. So your thoughts create your feelings, your feelings create your actions and your behaviors. You think a thought, I'm not enough. And that makes you feel angry or sad or helpless or hopeless. And now the feeling you feel from the thought you think affects the action you take, which is often no action. I'm not going to invite people to my house or ask someone to come over. I'm not going to go to and ask that little kid to be my friend because I know I'm not enough. So I think a thought, it creates a feeling, which in itself creates a behavior and an action, which I justify because of the thought. But if you just change that to I am enough, now I feel totally different. If I know I'm enough, I can take a risk. I can speak to people. I can ask a kid to be my friend, to help me, to come and hang out. I can ask the teacher questions in class. I can submit work because I know I'm enough, so I feel good. And the feeling better about myself changes my actions and my behaviors because I'm not scared of not being enough because I know the truth, I am enough. So you think a thought, that affects your feeling, that affects your actions. And I was working with a little girl recently who said, I don't have any friends. And I said, why not? And she said, I'm not good at anything. So that was her thought. And I said, well, let's look at the things you are good at. So there's nothing I said, no, there must be something. So we found out lots of things she was good at. And we just changed that whole thought process, which in turn changed her feelings. And, you know, my father was an incredible headmaster and he would always teach me that. He could always ask children what they were good at. They go, nothing. And he'd say, no, I know you're good at something. They go, I'm good at jacking up a vending machine and getting the drinks. And he'd go, well, that's a gift. That's good. And often they'd say, you know, I'm good at getting money out of that house my mum doesn't know but he would never prison he'd always look at that as a talent and see how they could use that and you know there was a thing not long ago where policemen kept finding these kids with half a tennis ball in their pocket and eventually they said what is that why are all these kids wandering around there and one of them said well if you take half a tennis over a Mercedes and hit it like that the air will disable the most incredible locking system. Well, of course, Mercedes needs to employ those children because they're creating a great lock. And these kids have got the intelligence to use half a tennis ball to disable it. And if you ever watched that movie, Catch Me If You Can with Alana DiCaprio, that guy now works for the FBI. So the biggest thing is to make your kids believe you do have a talent, you do have a gift. You may think, I don't have one. You know, I came out of hospital with my baby I got locked out of my house and I called the AA and the police. They can, my, my brother said, oh, I used to be a criminal, love. I can get you in. And he got me in. And in a second, I said, you should be working for a locksmith because no one else could get me in the way you could. He went, oh, yeah, I've got these special skills. And I love that about him. But what a waste that he didn't use those. You must always believe that you are enough. And just the way you are, you're worthy enough, lovable enough, good enough. And I think for women especially, we think, well, I'll be enough when I snip something off, inject something, and I'm going to lose weight, work out. I'm going to change. No, you can just be enough. And it's the same thing with being lovable. Love doesn't have to be earned or chased or bought or worked for. It should just be given and received. But I think the media do women a great disservice. We're always seeing someone who's just had three babies and looks amazing. And we think, my stomach doesn't look like that. My kid doesn't look like that. My house doesn't look like that. 
And I think for women especially, we get overexposed to completely fake images of perfection. And what they make us feel is not enough. Oh, look at that person on Instagram having a great time. Everything is white. The sofas are white. The carpet's white. The linen's white. My house doesn't look like that. Well, most people's don't. All of these images make us feel not enough. And you have to realize it's not real and you are enough just the way you are. So what happens, Marissa? Because you talked about that incredible example, which actually I felt very emotional when you were sharing that, about the baby being left and the innate enoughness and self-worth of babies. And then we were talking about how so many children, and I know this is true, you know, of how I felt. I felt so insecure and I wasn't good at anything. What happens? Where does this go awry? And is it possible as a parent to help our children hold on to that innate enoughness? It goes awry very, very fast for many children when you have parents who say, but your sister could read when she was four. Your brother never got food all over the floor. Your cousin is so good. And we start to compare them. We don't mean to. We often think if I tell them that, they'll shape up. And that comparison is absolutely horrible. It's parents who will also say, oh, God, this other mother at the school gate, she makes me feel so inept. I remember taking my daughter for a common entrance exam, and this mother in there said, her child was reading the Sunday Times or in French. And I'm like, oh, my child doesn't even read the Sunday Times, let alone start to read it in French. And so it's very easy to feel inadequate. And as parents, we now have, we go to someone's house and, oh, I liked my house, but now I've been to your house. My house feels really dissatisfying. You know, I was a single parent and I saw how easy it was for certain friends of mine to make me feel second best because they had banker husbands and beautiful homes and holidays abroad. And I was doing everything myself. Now I wouldn't change places with them for a nanosecond, but I felt inadequate by comparison. If you know how that feels as an adult, imagine being a child. And we stream kids, which is so bad. I was taking my little girl into school. She was only five, maybe not even five. And she said, mommy, look at that person. They can write their name in a box. And I can't write my name in a box. I'm like, darling, their name is Sam. It's just an S and an A and an M. Your name is Fade with a P and the H and the A and the D. And one day everybody can write their name in a box and no one's going to care about that. But it really bothered me that this school would making all these kids who could get then. And she had a friend called DM Antopoulos. I mean, that poor kid, I don't know how she would even cope with getting her name in a box. But imagine that Sam and Amy are good kids because they can get their name in a box. If your name is Theodora or Phaedra, you can't get your name in that box. The straight away comes that I'm not as good as. And then prize giving. I mean, that's a terrible thing because you're not rewarding effort. You're rewarding achievement. The naturally bright kid who doesn't even do any work gets all the prizes and you give one kid a prize and 30 kids don't get a prize. And you should only ever reward effort, not achievement, because the kids who don't get prizes just give up. It's like, oh, no one ever notices me. Why bother? As a parent and as a teacher, your job, apart from feeding your kids and loving them, is to grow their self-esteem. And you grow children's self-esteem with praise, but it has to be real. You cannot do the other go, you're the best, you're better than everyone. That doesn't work either. 
But you must make your children feel they have a sense of purpose. You've got something, oh, I don't know. I don't know what it is, but I know one day we're going to find out that you are so good at something. And so it's really important to make them not compare. You know, I was working this little boy recently who had nightmares, and he said, I'm not good at sport and I'm not good at art. But I'm really good at business. But that's your gift, darling. Imagine if you were good at everything. Imagine if the whole world was good at everything. We would never employ people. We go, well, I can cook. I can sew. I can clean. I can garden. I can. I can. I don't need anyone. I'm good at everything. People would be out of work. You're good at computers. That's your gift. You ought to let someone else be good at art. Because it's not fair to be good. It's not right. And then recently I was giving a talk and this guy put up his hand. He said, hey, could you help me make my kid good at everything? And I said, well, are you good at everything? He said, no. I said, well, then why are you even asking your kid to be good at everything when you're not? And even the way the mind works, an artistic kid can't be good at maths. And a kid who's really good at maths isn't going to be good at art and movement because it's different. So you should always let your kids be good at what they're good at in Finland now. You only go to classes you like. And they said, it's so much better. Why make some kid do sport when they don't know? Why force a kid to do biology? And they said, it's actually much better that they pick the lessons. And they pick lessons that tend to merge with their natural gift and their natural interests. And they're turning out much happier kids. I'm so with you. So just with your beliefs and your experience then of seeing that really isn't education about helping people feel esteemed enough to grow their talents and gifts did you stick with mainstream schooling for your daughter because I think school is set up for comparison is set up to make you average at everything not great at one thing and I'm wondering how did you fit into that system with this (laughs) <laughs> I remember my little girl went to a private school. She was very lucky and she was so good at art that they put her drawing on the front of the school magazine. And I think she was only five, maybe six. And I went for her and the teacher said, well, you know, she's just average. She's just an average kid. She's average. At everything. I said, really? She's really good at art. I said, well, no, she's just average. I said, but her pictures, them, yeah, I know, but she's just average. She goes, but don't be upset. Almost all the children in this class are average. They're all average. I said, but... Some of these kids are speaking three languages. It was in Putney. There's a lot of Japanese children going to this school called Putney Park. Yeah, but they're still average. And then I said, oh, do you know you use that word so much? It's just clicked that you're average and that's all you can get from these children. And if you're so average, why am I even paying all these fees to put my kid in a class with a teacher who expects nothing but average? And I said, have you heard of Marva Collins? She said, no, so you need to read about her. Marva Collins, if you don't know, is this amazing teacher in the projects in Chicago who was having these kids read Steinbeck and told them they were geniuses. And we've all heard the stories of the school that said to a teacher, hey, you know, We've been noticing for a year that you're the best teacher in the school. And we've handpicked the best students because you're so bright and they're so bright. And you can only get amazing results. So, of course, a year later, outcome, these kids are amazing. And they go, you know, it's just a trust. You're just as random as they are. We just gave you any kids and we picked a teacher out of a hat. But the belief that they were exceptional with exceptional kids got exceptional results. So... I mean, my father was a teacher. Most teachers are wonderful, lovely, caring, but you'll always get some that go, well, you're just average. Then at my next daughter's school, her teacher said, well, 
if you apply to a third-rate art school, you'll get in. But if you apply to a good one, you probably won't get in. So only apply to a mediocre one. I'm like, wow. And again, I had to say to her, why would you make my daughter think so small? She's a great artist. She goes, yes, I know she's great. But, you know, art is so hard and it's so hard to get a living from art and better to be a small fish in a big pond than a big fish in a small pond. So she should apply to a third-rate art school. And it's like... It's a shame that there are some teachers, not many, but some who also, they extinguish our kids' flame. Oh, you're not going to do that. That's not going to work. Nobody will let you do that. When instead we should make them dream big. You can do whatever you want. You must have the belief. You actually must work hard. A lot of people miss it. They go, I've been watching this show about manifest. I'm going to manifest. It's like, no, there are three stages. First of all, Believe that you are worth it. That's so much. I am worth it. Decide that you're going to follow your heart's desire, but then you have to work incredibly hard too. It's like, you know, I've written many books and I love writing books, but honestly, that's the easy bit. Getting them published, getting them to sell, keeping them promoted, that is way harder than writing a book. And if you want to write a book, you better learn to be a speaker too, because people expect you to turn up and do a TED talk. And if you can't, or go to an event and do book signing, then you're not going to be able to sell your book. So even if you have a gift, you have to learn other skills. It's better to teach, okay, you want to be a doctor. That's great. Are you prepared to do six years to study? Are you committed to this? And do you believe you've got it in you? And do you feel you're worth it? And they may answer yes to two of them and no to the third. So you have to bring them back to having all of them. And it's our job as parents to fill our kids up with self-belief, but also self-discipline, because the best goal in the world isn't going to work if you don't work. I think that's such a powerful point. And I'm wondering, you've touched on a few things. What else has motherhood taught you or how has that experience informed your work today? I think the biggest thing I learned from motherhood was how we expect to give birth to ourselves. I'm so tidy. God, my kid's so messy. I'm so reasonable. My kid is completely irrational. And of course, I learned very that my daughter was my teacher. She's nothing like me. I mean, we, we share lots of things in common, but you know, you see this and they're so different. They don't want to eat what you eat or think what you think or do what you do. And again, my daughter is an artist in her very soul. And I realized that she doesn't even see mess. So all the other, Pedro, look at this thing. You've got paint on the wall. Look at this. It was just a complete waste of time. In the end, I remember going with my friend and stapling sheet plastic over my daughter's carpet and deciding I was going to shut the door. I'm just going to let her have as much mess as she wants because It's not fair to try and make her like me. She's nothing like me. And, you know, I have to celebrate her difference. And we still occasionally, it's still interesting. Now we'll be in the car and she'll say, that's disrespectful. And she'll go, mum, I'm not like you. All my friends swear, talk like this. And it's not disrespectful. It's just the way we talk. Like, for instance, her generation, they don't leave voice messages ever. It's like, who leaves a voicemail? They text and they text and text talk and they don't answer the phone. And, you know, I just understand that why should I expect her to be like me? And certainly she doesn't expect me to be like, hey, you have to celebrate the difference. It wasn't, you know, I've got two kids. They're so different. It's like, well, 
That's the point. Why have two that are identical? So my biggest lesson was seeing that I might be teaching her, but she's my teacher too. She's teaching me tolerance and patience and to look at the world differently. And of course, little kids are so great with their perspective of everything. And she said to me, Mummy, is it tomorrow today? Is it yesterday now? And I realized I said, we'll do that tomorrow. We'll do that later. And of course, one of the things to understand about the human mind, which is so fascinating, is it cannot future pace. When you say to a bully child next year, you'll be a different school. They can't even imagine what next year is. When you say to someone who's depressed, look, next year, and a child who is struggling at school next year, be in a different class because the mind doesn't future pace. It only lives in the moment. It's why people who are depressed or bullied or sad or sick can't actually even imagine being over it. I know I had pneumonia many years ago and within a week I couldn't remember what it was like to lie down and sleep because I had to sit bolt upright. And then of course when I got better I forgot what it was like to have to sleep sitting up because the mind can only be in the moment. And so when she goes, is it yesterday? Is it today? Is it tomorrow? Is it the present now? Is it this evening now? We get on a plane. Are we in Greece now after five minutes? And she really showed me in action the workings of the mind and not just for our children, but for ourselves. It's important to see that our mind can't live in the future. It can only live in the now. So when you say, next year I'm going to have a bikini body, next year I'm going to be fit, next year I'm going to be wealthy, you have to say now, right now, this minute, today, even if it doesn't make sense, because that's the only way the mind works. I've been saying to my daughter, actually, you're going to be back at school, you know, hopefully in six weeks. What would be better to say? It's better to say, you know, we're at home for the moment and you will be going back to school. And when you go back to school, it'll be so great. You'll actually forget all the times when you weren't at school. But right now we just have to enjoy where we are. Okay, yeah. So painting a picture and the feelings, but anchoring in the present. She'll be playing with friends, hanging out, but it has to be imagining, yeah, you're going to be having school lunches and recess and playtime and sleepovers. And that's all going to happen. But while we wait for that to happen, we have to be happy now and think about what's good about now. You know, you've done this amazing meditation, Magical Minds. Tell us a bit about that and what else we can do right now to help our children who might be struggling. Yeah, when I was in LA in March and lockdown just began, a couple of my friends' children would say things like, there's a granola virus and the granola virus is going to kill our grandparents. And of course, one of my friends who heard about the coronavirus thought it really did live in the cereal in the pantry and was really freaked out about this granola virus. And of course, children hear things like, you know, we can't see granny and granddad because we might make them ill. And that's very hard for children to understand. So I thought, you know what? I'm here, I can't go anywhere, I can't see people. And so I thought, well, I've always wanted to write this children's program. I had the idea actually 20 years ago, amazingly, and it was 20 years ago that the, maybe longer, the Bellevue Children's Hospital in Cleveland showed children a puppet show where they had a policeman and a puppet, and the puppet was a German, the policeman, 20 years, was hitting the puppet with a truncheon, and he killed the puppet, but it was a germ. And they showed this to the children and then they said, close your eyes and imagine the policeman was in your body killing all the germs. So they did, took a few minutes, but then they took samples of saliva and their immunoglobulin levels. They found that their levels of protein 
that shows the immune system is super effective. It's gone right up because when they thought about this puppet show, the body acted as if it was real. And, of course, I've always known that as a therapist and as a teacher that every thought you think bar none has a physical reaction and an emotional response. Think of something sad and you get teary. Think of something embarrassing and you blush. Think of something sexual, especially if you're a guy. You get a very physical reaction. Think of food. Your tummy rumbles. And so I decided to make a program for children. It was really very simple. They close their eyes, pick up their imaginary game controller, and they play a game. It's a little story, first of all, about how they have three types of cells. The first cells are the spy cells, the captain cells, and they're on patrol all the time looking for a germ or a virus. And when they find it, they call out the troops and out come the troops, and the troops will surround the germs and kill them because that's what our immune system is. And then out come the antibodies. They're the monocytes actually that clean up. So there is a specific thing that happens in all of our bodies when we're sick. If we're getting a cold or a virus, because they go, oh, there's no defense. Where's the vaccine? There is a defense. The first thing your body does is it has cells on patrol all the time looking for a virus. And when they find it, they call for backup. And out come these other cells that fight a virus. They fight it, they surround it, they devour it. If it's a huge virus, they call for backup, they snip off edges. And then out come the macrophages and monocytes who eat up the debris, but leave behind antibodies. So I decided to make the antibodies like little antibodies, in America call it antibodies. They were little like jelly beans. So I just made this imaginary game for children to play that, look, you get to choose. You can have dragons, you can have Fortnite or Minecraft or dolphins or super ninjas or troopers killing the germ. And along come your little antibodies, the shiny little jelly beans, and they stay behind and protect you. So it's just a game that children could play. It took minutes and they loved it. One little boy said, I've got pea shooters. And he wrote to me and said, I've got pea shooters in my body and they kill that virus. And I wash my hands and I'm making everything well. And then we made a song called, you know, your cleanup squaddies and making antibodies. And then I made a little actual physical story that you can read to your children. If you go to marissapeer.com, Magical Minds, it's all there. It's a game, it's a song, and it's a story. But what happened is children were saying, you know, I'm singing that song with my granddad and I'm singing about every cell is well and my cleanup squaddies are making antibodies. And it's actually helping my granddad because, of course, it's working on the same as you think a thought, your body reacts. So when you think, oh my God, I just went out, my hair's wet and I touched the rail, I'm now going to get sick. You're actually putting that thought. And when you go, hey, I've got a great immune system. I can lie in bed. My husband is streaming with cold, but I'm fine. Because to be sick, you have to be exposed to a virus, but you also have to react. You have to be physically, mentally, and emotionally out. Why does that happen that one of our family gets a cold, the other doesn't get it? Why does it happen that one person reacts to food and is sick and the other person doesn't? Well, you have to have physically be low, mentally and emotionally low. And our immune system is just the most amazing piece of equipment if we could only trust it. And what the immune system reacts well to is passion and positivity and focus and belief and feeling good. Yeah, I'm tired, but hey, I just see, oh, I'm so tired. I'm going to get every bug going. 
So the immune system reacts really well to being positive, focused, happy, passionate, and he reacts really badly to, oh, I'm so low. I'm now going to get sick. It's the winter. The minute the heating comes on, I get my sinus headache. I haven't had enough sleep. I'm now going to get sick. I've been out in the cold. I'm going to get sick. I ate some chicken. It was a bit pink in the middle. I'm going to get sick. If you expect that, one of the rules of the mind is what you expect tends to be realized. And every thought you think is a blueprint that your mind and body work towards. So when I go on planes, there's always a choice. Oh, I'm going to get ill. Someone just sneezed behind me. That steward has been touching everyone's food. You can choose to think that. You can also choose to go, hey, I've got an amazing... People used to live in dirt. When I was in Scotland, they were showing you where the farmers lived underground. And I mean, no bathrooms, no sinks and 11 children. Yet people did come through there. You think of... Elizabethan times where they had no sanitation. When I was in Egypt, somebody was showing me this home. I went, oh, this is amazing. They went, no, this is still like this today. I mean, it was so dirty, but fascinating. But it's the belief. And so you can choose to be negative. I'm going to get ill. I'm going to get sick. I'm going to get an infection. Or you can choose to be positive. I've got a great immune system. I can fight all of this. But the one thing you can't choose is what you do to your body when you go into that negativity. I'm going to get my tension headache now. I'm going to get my upset stomach. My back always goes when I haven't slept enough or sat in a comfortable position. And I was raised with a hypochondriac mother who was, again, my teacher. She really showed me the other side, that always expecting to be sick and how frequently that happened. And even when I had a baby, I remember people saying, well, you know, you're going to get postnatal depression and you're going to get this and that. And I'm like, oh, no, no, I'm going to get postnatal euphoria. I've signed up for that. And that's what I'm expecting. I'm not expecting depression. I was told I could never have a baby. And even if I could get pregnant, I'd never carry one to full term. And the fact that I am means that this baby is my, like, nonstop joy. But it's such a shame that we, without knowing it, And the television does a lot to encourage that, oh, winter blues and let's now go on this diet to get back into shape or everyone gains 10 pounds over Christmas. They they fill us with these negative expectations. Then they talk about empty nest syndrome. Oh, have you got that? No, because having a child that's left having gone to college is a great thing. Why would I mourn that? I miss them. But the only way you can keep your kids at home forever is to have ones that are handicapped and how lucky that's not happening. But the media does a great disservice. It trains us to expect bad stuff. And that's certainly happened with COVID. I mean, I'm far from an expert, but a lot of studies say that the amount of people are dying, it's actually the same, maybe a little bit higher. Don't quote me on that because I don't know. But I do know that it's making us want to live in terror when it's so unnecessary. I've taken this from your work in the past and other talks of yours that I've watched is just the power of what we say to ourselves. You know, we've talked about it. It's been the theme of, of the episode, but it is so powerful. And I'll just tell you an example. I used to faint whenever I had a blood test. And the last time it happened, I was like, I just can't let this happen again. It's really inconvenient. It's kind of embarrassing. I don't want this to happen again. And I think at the time, you know, I was probably watching some of your videos and other people's and I thought, I'm just going to create a new belief that I love blood tests. 
I love blood tests. And I would go to the next blood test and I made every part of my body. I just convinced myself I loved it. And guess what? I have never, ever, ever fainted from a blood test ever again. And all I did, I just convinced myself that I loved it. It was absolutely remarkable. I'm so glad you did that. There's a really fast way to do that, which is to sing yourself a song. I love it. I love it. I like it. I like it. I broke my arm in the snow in London. I don't even know how long ago it was. No, 2010. It was just where I got married. They put it in a sling and it set kind of like a triangle. And they said, oh, well, we can't straighten it now. And I decided I just have to pay someone to force on to be straight three times a week. And he said it, it really, really hurts. And most people come along and they give up halfway through. So I'd always play that song by the Black Eyed Peas, let's get it started, bring it on, bring it on. And all the time he was doing it, I was singing a song, I love it, I love it, I want it, I want it. And my mind was so confused because it did really hurt but I was always saying, I want this. I want a straight arm, whatever it takes. I want it. Because when someone's pulling your arm, your instinct is to pull back and you've got to go with it. And so it's always a great thing to pick a song. Don't stop me now. I'm having a good time. I'm having a ball. Bring it on. I'm having the time of my life. There's so many great songs. This girl is on fire. I am titanium. And if you're ever going for something like, as you say, a blood test, going to the dentist, walking on stage, going for an interview, if you sing a little song, simply the best, better than all. That's why boxers walk into the ring to that song. It's why Tony Blair used Things Are Going to Get Better and Obama used A Change Is Going to Come because songs fill up your mind with a message. And one of the best things to do when you're having any kind of medical test is to sing a song. Happy is a great song by Pharrell. That's another thing, but they can't hold conflicting thoughts. You can't be happy and sad. You know, if you were going for a tattoo, you wouldn't go, I'm going to faint. People say, I'm going to have angel wings on my shoulder. It's going to take two years. And they have to look forward to it because I wouldn't like having angel wings tattooed down my spine for two years. But, but people do that because they link pain to it junkies are thrilled about shoving a needle in their arm and you just said something very telling you see if I held a needle in my hand or I need a lump of beef you wouldn't react to it you react to what it means to you if I'm a vegan that beef is awful if I'm a Hindu it's disgusting if I'm a bodybuilder it's amazing if I'm having Botox I I like that needle if I'm having a tattoo I love it if I'm in pain I can't wait for you to put that needle in but if I hate needles I can faint just looking at it, but it's not the needle or the beef. It's what you think about it. And that's great news because it means you can change what you think about anything, anytime. In fact, a client came to see me many years ago with such a fear of blood that she wouldn't let herself have children because she's like, I could never cope with a nosebleed when my daughter's got to the time of their period. I just, and they're always having cuts and I can't look at blood. It's just the bane of my life. An hour later, she was so funny that it was the weirdest thing. I went home, I stopped to get some petrol and the garage was being held up and they'd slashed this guy's hand. I walked in, I'm like, look at that. That's just fascinating. He's got all blood running down his arm and I'm fascinated. She said, oh, actually, I should be running out of here and calling the police. But I was so fascinated that it took my mind a while to engage and to run back out and to dial 999 because I just was so thrilled that I wasn't bothered by blood that I forgot to register in the middle of a holdup. And I thought that was so funny. I mean, nothing happened to her. The guy ran out. The police came. The guy was fine. It was actually only a surface cut. 
But it was so funny that she was forever chained by her ability to be excited about blood, not terrified. And that's because you reprogrammed, essentially, her subconscious. Yeah, you rewire someone. And rewiring is easy. The mind learns by repetition. It responds only to the words and pictures you make. And it likes to return to what's familiar. And you can make anything from it, including jabbing a contact lens in your eye if you want to. So when you rewire people's thinking, RTT does it in a very particular way. It really excites the imagination with good pictures like, I can't not eat cake. Suddenly it thrills me to eat an apple instead of a cake. It elates me, but it delights me. I love saying no to cake and yes to some strawberries because you can't say, oh, you can't have cake. You mustn't have cake because we want it. You have to get the mind really excited about an alternative. So you rewire the mind with words, pictures, affirmations, statements, but you also have the client see very clearly that what they were is not who they are. So a vegan would always say, well, I would never eat meat because this is who I am. And when you can make an intention, okay, I'm not going to eat chocolate because being healthy is who I am. It's so much easier than, oh, I really want the chocolate. I mustn't, I just have a little bit. Oh, no, I've done it. Might as well have more. And anyway, when I'm down, I've got to have it. But when you go, this is who I am, it's so much easier to stick to it. And then it stops being what you do and actually does become who you are. It's so incredible, your work, because it's so accessible and simple and yet transformational. A couple of final questions. One is that I'm curious about, I hope you don't mind me asking this, is there anything that you still struggle with in your life? Oh, yes. I'd love to be a very lazy person. So I sometimes don't want to do lots and lots and lots of stuff. So going to the gym, working out, I have to make myself do it in the morning. So when I get up, I have to make myself work out first because if I don't do it first, I don't do it. But the mark of people who are successful is they do what they don't want to do first. I know that, I teach it, I write about it, but I still have to say to myself, look, you've got to do this first. So I find whenever I do anything first, it makes me feel, but I struggle with lots of things. I struggle with, yeah, not wanting to do stuff, I struggle with thinking, oh, I should be doing more and I could be doing more. And sometimes I don't struggle, but I sometimes think, well, I don't want to work. I just want to do nothing. But then when I do nothing, I never feel very motivated. But I think it's much better to accept the truth. I'm a flawed person and I'm going to live a flawed life with other flawed people forever. And it's so much nicer to go, hey, my husband's flawed, I'm flawed, all my friends are flawed, and let's have a flawed relationship, then I must be perfect. I've got to be perfect. I've got to work out and eat right. Because if you give yourself a really restrictive diet, you'll always come off it. I mean, I wrote with people all my adult life, getting them to become healthier in a better way. But like you can't go on a restrictive diet because it's human nature to want what you can't have. I'm on a keto diet, and I can eat loads of steak and lobster, but I, all I want is some Cadbury's chocolate buttons because I know I can't have them. And so it's much more important to decide that you can choose to feel whatever you want to feel, but try not to be perfect because when you try to be perfect, you've entered a race with no finishing line ever. As you get near, it moves, and then it moves again. And I find the happiest mothers ones who go, well, yes, you know, I've got four kids and three cats. And of course, there's coffee on the carpet and kids got Play-Doh ground into the sofa. But 
that's our life. I've seen many parents are kind of hippie-ish, laid back, and there's so much of the ones are always getting upset about a white leather. When why would you have a white leather sofa when you've got three kids? I mean, the day my daughter went to college, I actually got a white leather sofa. And then my little stepson came over and stamped over with a pink stamper. And I thought, what a crazy thing to do. And then I got this kind of suede sofa. And then I met my husband who got avocado and tomato all over it. And now in our new house, he's saying, let's get white sofas. I'm like, let's get gray because then you can never sit there with sows forever. And I'm like, don't do that. So we're going to get pale gray sofas, not white, because trying to keep stuff perfect, it's just not worth it. The stress involved in trying to be perfect because you're entering a race with no finishing line. And I find people who try to be perfect are the unhappiest and certainly the loneliest too. In fact, I've actually suddenly decided that I like Kim Kardashian. She was talking about getting this young guy of 19 appealing to Donald Trump to get him out of jail for the three strikes. And I think, you know, that's so good that she's actually doing something with her life. But why is she? I guess she's got perfect kids, an amazing body, all the money she'll ever need, a perfect wardrobe. But you see, that's not enough because she doesn't feel purposeful. And now she's going back to law and she wants to be a lawyer like her dad. She wants to do some good. And that's what makes you happy, doing something valuable finding a purpose. You know, the happiest people are not supermodels with immaculate houses. They're all miserable. I mean, I've met so many of them. The happiest people are people who are flawed. And, you know, many years ago, my daughter came and she went, mum, my friend's mum, she's a real mum. She makes cakes and they have all these guinea pigs running around the living room and anyone can sleep on the floor. They can have like 12 people having a sleepover and they've got all these animals. And why can't you be like that? And I said, yeah, that's it. Why can't I be like that? I said, I don't know, darling, but you have a lot of benefits being with me. You get to wear my clothes. You went backstage at X Factor. You went backstage at Pop Idol. You meet all these fish. Because if I don't want that, I want you to make cakes and have all these guinea pigs running around the kitchen. I'm like, okay, well, I'll take that in. Anyway, I met the mother and I said, oh, my daughter thinks you're the best mother. And she went, that's so funny because my daughter said, oh, mommy, why could you be like Phaedra's mum? Phaedra can wear her leather trousers and they went to X Factor. And why can't you be like that? So that was quite funny because each child said, I want that kind of mum. But you can only be the mum you are. You know, if you're not fantastic at cooking or great, even Nigella Lawson said, I'm great at cooking. I'm no good at playing. I don't know how to play with my children. Then play through cooking. We can't all be Jamie and Jules Oliver and, you know, they look like they have an amazing life. I'm sure they do. But then you have lots of staff and other people chop up the carrots and wash them. And all you have to do is put them in a juicer. You know, I've seen enough celebrities who they open the fridge and it's all done. Everyone does everything. Everyone does the laundry, the shopping, the cooking, the cleaning. They have an easy time, but we don't. We have to do all of that. So do it the best you can, but give yourself a break for not being perfect. And imagine, that's a very good thing to close on. I've had a few clients whose biggest damage was done by having perfect parents. My mum was a supermodel, worked out every day, lived on lettuce and carrots and I'm not like that. My dad went heli skiing and he was like James Bond and I'm not like that. I always remember working with someone who was so clinically depressed and her father had made a movie on an island for two years and it was paradise. They dressed up as fairies and tripped around this island. People made them lunch. 
when they came back to real life, none of them could cope with it because it was like, oh, I've been living in paradise. Now I can't cope with reality. And so I've often seen the other side of that. I've certainly seen people who feel bad because they're not perfect. I've also seen people whose life appeared to be perfect, who were miserable. Enid Blyton, by all accounts, was an awful mother because she was so busy writing these perfect stories. And I say to my clients, you know, reality is people who can't deal with drugs. Be real, live a real life, because that's what our kids are going to go and live. It's never going to be perfect. It's when they learn that life is disappointing and people get cranky and people mess up, then they know that they can do that too, and it's okay. Absolutely. I always ask the same question at the end of every interview, which is if you could give just one gift to all the mothers in the world, what would that one gift be and why? Well, I could give them a physical gift. If you go to marissapeer.com, we have all kinds of totally free. We don't ask for your credit card or anything like that. We have audios on love blocks and wealth blocks and health blocks, and they're all free. If you want to go to imenough.com, you can learn how to put that into your children's life. But the other gift, and I wish I'd known you when I was a parent, is that all your children want is for you to be present with them. That's all they want. Be present with me while I'm craning, jumping in a puddle, making jam with you. And I don't have a lot of regrets, but I really wished I'd spent more time just being present with my little girl and loving her child because it goes so fast and you can never go back and get that back. I'm often so busy and I'm not writing a book to give you the life you want. She goes, but mommy, I like the life I've got. I just want you to be here with me. And Donna Summer said that her daughter, when she was on a talk, said, mommy, can I make an appointment to be with you? And did it really hit home to her that her daughter thought she had to schedule in a diary being with a mother. They just want us to be present and we can be present most of the time because it doesn't last long. It's gone so fast. That's so beautiful. Such a good reminder. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you so much. I've absolutely loved this chat. Thank you. So that was the episode. I hope that you really enjoyed it. As ever, if you did, please consider sharing it with your friends and leaving me a review on iTunes. It really does make a difference to the number of mums that we can reach with the brilliant wisdom of the guests I have on. Also, just a reminder about the Family Reset Plan. It's my latest offering to parents. I think that we are living in probably the challenge of our lifetimes. Well, definitely so far. And as parents, we not only have to support ourselves, we also have to support our children. And that is a lot. So the Family Reset Plan is myself and two brilliant psychologists and we give you step-by-step, simple, applicable ways that you can support yourself emotionally to feel stronger, calmer, and therefore to support your children in a different way. It's all grounded in psychology and neuroscience. It's just £25 currently. And if you work for the NHS, it is totally free for you. So check out the website, familyresetplan.co.uk. Take care. I'll see you next time.